0: This is the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm Rebecca Larson, and this is the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. With this podcast, I share a variety of stories from the most well known dynasty of them all, the Tudors, from simple stories about the people of the time to the drama that was the reign of Henry VIII, and of course, religion and politics. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by The Falcon Nest, handmade history-themed jewelry. The Falcon Nest specializes in gorgeous replicas of the famous Anne Boleyn Bee Necklace. See more at the-falcon-nest.com and be sure to use promo code TUDORSDYNASTY to receive 15% off. In today's episode, I'll be looking into Tudor coronations. Tudor coronations. I recently purchased Roy Strong's book on coronations, and I wanted to share with you my findings. The dynasty we all adore so much did not start until 1485, on the battlefield, with Yorkist king, Richard III, fighting against the Lancastrian heir, Henry Tudor. As we all know, Henry Tudor and his army defeated and killed Richard III. The crown was then, by right, the property of Henry Tudor, or Henry VII. When it came to the coronation of the first Tudor king, it is believed that he used the same format as Richard III, only changing the name to Henry VII instead. Copying the format of Richard III's coronation was believed to have been a way to assert Henry VII's legitimacy to the throne. The Battle of Bosworth occurred on the 22nd of August, 1485, and Henry VII's coronation was scheduled for the 30th of October, right before the next sitting parliament. In the Holinshed chronicle it was recorded quote, Henry with great pomp rode unto Westminster and there the thirtieth day of October he was with all ceremonies accustomed anointed and crowned king by the whole assent as well of the commons as of the nobility and called Henry the seventh of that name Hollinshed, who had died in 1580, was not alive when Henry's coronation took place in 1485, so anything he wrote was more likely secondhand or hearsay. In the beginning of his reign, Henry VII took great effort in making certain that he displayed the necessary authority and right to the crown of England during his coronation. With that, he was showing his subjects that he was the only person suitable to rule and that his claim was, without a doubt, valid. That decision on the part of Henry VII would set the tone for his descendants, and dynasty for that matter, on how they chose to show their right and legitimacy to the same crown. Where Richard III was constantly under suspicion of conspiracy regarding his nephews, the princes in the Tower, Henry VII had to deal with pretenders attempting to take his throne, Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck. As you probably already know, Richard III is mostly believed to have usurped the throne of his nephew, Edward V, and many, except Ricardians, believe he is responsible for their disappearance and death. Unlike any of the Tudor monarchs, Richard III was actually accused of having a second coronation. It is mentioned in a 1906 book by Sir Clements Robert Markham called Richard III, His Life and Character Reviewed in the Light of Recent Research. And in it it says, quote, it was also stated on the authority of the same Croyland monk that Richard went through the ceremony of a second coronation at York. The deduction intended to be drawn, and which often has been drawn, was that his title was so doubtful that he hoped a double coronation might strengthen it. But there was no second coronation at York. Nothing of the kind ever took place. When we examine the coronation of Henry the Seventh, His son, Henry VIII, and his grandson, Edward VI, all that remains are eyewitness accounts from heralds and foreign ambassadors, although Edward VI's coronation planning and such appears to have been mentioned in council notes more than his predecessors. Henry VIII's coronation was a double coronation with his queen, Catherine of Aragon, and was held on Midsummer's Day, 24th of June, 1509. Their coronation also had similarities to Richard III since he and his consort Anne Neville were the last to have had a double coronation. In the British Library, there remains a copy of the coronation of Henry VIII with notes by Henry. The British Library Online references the changes that King Henry made to his coronation oath. Quote, On acceding to the throne, monarchs were crowned in a magnificent and elaborate ceremony in which the new king swore to defend the church. Here, the unmistakable hand of Henry has made several significant revisions to the oath. Instead of swearing to maintain the rights and liberties of the Holy Church, he would swear to maintain those of the Holy Church of England, adding that crucial qualification, not pray to his jurisdiction and dignity royal. Walter Ullman, a historian of medieval political thought, argued that these revisions anticipated the break with Rome. However, there is nothing to confirm that this altered version of the oath was either used in 1509 nor at the coronation of his son Edward VI in 1547. It's most likely that the revisions were made at the same time as the break with Rome in the 1530s and were taken no further. Nonetheless, they remain highly revealing about how Henry saw his royal supremacy over the church. Coronation celebrations could last days, and King Henry VIII, the young, new, athletic king, was an excellent athlete and had surrounded himself with similar men. Quote, fresh young gallants and noble men gorgeously appareled with curious devices of cuts and embroideries as well in their coats as in trappers for their horses, some of gold, some of silver, some of tinsel, and some of divers' others in goldsmiths' work, goodly to behold." The challengers at the Tilt came disguised as the Knights of Diana and were attired as beautifully as the men they were up against. Author Roy Strong states that, quote, the tournament was a peacetime exercise designed to train knights in the martial arts. The equivalent today would be the Trooping of the Color. Both were rituals showing the monarch as apex of the country's fighting force. Edward VI's coronation changed a bit according to eyewitness accounts compared to what the council had decided in the tower, from what we have in the notes. For this, I referenced my 1890 copy of the Acts of the Privy Council from 1547 to 1550. By the way, this is one of my favorite books that I own. Anyway, I looked for the section about his coronation. Here's what I found. At the council meeting on the 2nd of February, 1547, so we have to keep in mind Henry VIII died on the 28th of January, At the council meeting on the 2nd of February, 1547, they ordained the persons following to have the special charge of all other things meet to be put in order and provided for the said coronation. These positions, these people, they just named positions for the most part, were my Lord Great Master, Lord Privy Seal, Lord Admiral, Lord Chamberlain, Lord of Esses, the Treasurer, Comptroller, Master of the Horse, Mr. Rich and Mr. Coffer. By the 13th of February, the ten members discussed coronation arrangements, and they decided that the coronation ceremonies of the monarch's past were, namely, for the tedious length of the same, which should weary and be hurtsome, peradventure to the king's majesty being yet of tender age. The event would occur on Trove Sunday in the Cathedral Church of Westminster and appears from the page of details that it was heavily discussed and much thought had been put into their choices. At the end of the ceremony, the men made the pledge to their sovereign, I, Majesty, become your liege man of life and limb and of earthly worship and faith troth that I shall bear unto you against all manner of folks as I am bound by my allegiance and by the laws and statute of this realm. So help us, God. After the men spoke these words, they would then kiss the left cheek of the sovereign. Once all men completed their pledges, they held their hands together in a token of their fidelity, and with one voice, on their knees, said, We offer to sustain and defend you and your crown with our lives, lands, and goods against all the world. And then in one voice they cried, God save King Edward. Upon the accession, it was quite customary for the monarch to show their kindness and mercy by a proclamation of a general pardon during their homage. There is a mention of a general pardon being customary in, surprisingly, the American Law Journal from September 1869. Now, many of you may know this is during the Victorian era, and there was really a resurgence of fascination of the Tudors during this time. So it's interesting to me that even in America, uh, they seem to be interested in this as well. And what I found in the American Law Journal from 1869 was that it refers back to the reign of Edward III and the statutes at large that were passed in 1376. They stated that, This being the year of the king's jubilee, he doth grant pardon to his people of alien nations without license, intrusions, fines, immersements, issues, forfeitures, reliefs, debts, accounts, the suit of peace, the act, which was confirmed in 1377. A general pardon similar to the previously stated one was used by Henry VIII and his son Edward VI. Interestingly enough, the Council of Edward VI struggled with their decision on who to issue a pardon from, the deceased king, Henry VIII, or his successor, Edward VI. The decision, although laced with cynicism, was made in favor of Edward VI, since Henry VIII was dead and no longer needed people's love. The Privy Council of Edward VI was clearly looking to align themselves with other Protestant monarchs by having similar ceremonies to their own. Because of this, Roy Strong, in Coronation, a History of Kingship in British Monarchy, states, quote, Edward the Sixth was more fully endowed with the unction than any medieval king. The Privy Council had listed the palms, breast, middle of the back, two elbows, and his head with a cross in holy oil. The head was to have a second cross of chrism. Cromner, however, is recorded as having used both holy oil and chrism. On the soles of the king's feet, his breasts, wrists, elbow, and head. Edward's sister Mary was proclaimed queen on the 19th of July, 1553, but sadly, no copy of her coronation oath survives. We can be assured that whatever oath that she had, that it would definitely harken back to the Catholic days in England. From the onset, Mary's reign was doomed. For her predecessor's reign, Mary was still considered illegitimate. The only people who could reverse that were parliaments, but they would not meet until after the coronation, which was custom. Until then, Mary feared her illegitimate status would stain her reign and her desire to return England to the Catholic religion, Rome and the Pope. However, at the feast following the coronation, the heralds announced Queen Mary as, quote, "...supreme head of the Church of England." It appears that Mary was aware of this poignant moment in the coronation and she really had no other option at the time but to go along with what had occurred in 1547, eliminating the parts that Queen Mary deemed offensive. Mary was acutely aware of her tenuous throne. She wrote to her cousin, Cardinal Reginald Pole and petitioned him to send an express absolution not only for her but all loyal Catholics who would take part in the ceremony. Believe it or not... Queen Mary even requested uncontaminated supply of holy water from the Bishop of Ross in Brussels. Queen Mary's coronation took place on the 1st of October, 1553. On the 3rd of October, 1553, Simon Renard wrote a letter to Prince Philip of Spain. And in it, he said, On the eve of her coronation day, the Queen was removed from the Tower and Castle of London to Westminster Palace. She was accompanied by the earls, lords, gentlemen, ambassadors, and officers, all dressed in rich garments. The queen was carried in an open litter covered with brocade. Two coaches followed her. The Lady Elizabeth and the Lady Anne of Cleves rode in one, some of the ladies of court in the other. The streets were hung with tapestries and strewn with grass and flowers, and many triumphal arches were erected along the way. Renard goes on to say that Elizabeth is to be declared a bastard, having been born during the lifetime of Queen Catherine, mother of the queen. The affairs of the kingdom are unsettled because the vassals and people are prone to scandal and seekers after novelties. They are strange and troublesome folk. Any changes that Mary made to her coronation did not go unnoticed by her subjects they would have been keenly aware of the changes that they had just experienced since Edward VI six years earlier, and they would have noticed an attempt to return to the old custom. Elizabeth's coronation was similar in a way to her sister's, being that Parliament was not yet in session and would wait to do so until after the coronation. Elizabeth could not yet show her Protestant leanings, much like Mary could not show her Catholic leanings during the coronation. Unlike monarchs past, Elizabeth did not choose a holy date or a recognizable date for that manner. For her ceremony, instead, she turned to Dr. John D., court astrologer, to choose a suitable date for the ceremony. The date chosen was the 15th of January, 1559, nearly two months into her reign. Plenty of information remains from Elizabeth's coronation ceremony and the events of that week. Elizabeth's coronation was a day-long spectacle that took her through crowd-lined streets, carried on a golden litter. And you can be assured that it was all planned ahead of schedule. Like coronations of the past, there were a number of pageants along the route in honor of the new monarch. Along her procession, there were five pageants. The series of pageants were almost deliberately dancing on the grave of Queen Mary, And and they state that Elizabeth danced with the best. The first pageant was about Elizabeth's genealogy and showed that Elizabeth would bring peace to the strife-torn England, said David Starkey. The second pageant showed Elizabeth's government upheld by four virtues, true religion, love of subjects, wisdom, and justice. The third pageant was the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The fourth pageant represented time that depicted a decayed commonwealth under Queen Mary and a flourishing commonwealth with Queen Elizabeth. The fifth pageant depicted Elizabeth as Deborah, the prophetess who rescued Israel from Yabin, the king of Canaan, and then ruled over the Jews for 40 years. This, of course, looked back at Queen Mary's disastrous parliaments later in her rule. This next part is from the Royal Museum Greenwich site. Quote, For her part, Queen Elizabeth I committed herself wholly to the Lord Mayor and the people of London during the day's ex- activities, pledging, And whereas your request is that I should continue your good lady and be queen, be ye ensured that I will be as good unto you as ever queen was unto her people. No will in me can lack, neither do I trust shall there lack any power." And persuade yourselves that for the safety and quietness of you all, I will not spare if need be to spend my blood. God thank you all. Elizabeth's coronation was a meticulously planned propaganda exercise to relate to the people who their queen was and how their future would look. Westminster Abbey has been Britain's coronation church since 1066, starting with William the Conqueror all the way through our current monarch, Elizabeth II. All but two monarchs have been crowned in the Abbey. Edward V, who had been presumed to be murdered in the Tower of London before he ever had the possibility of being crowned, and then Edward VIII, who abdicated um, after succeeding his father. Once a monarch was crowned, it was seen God blessing his reign or her reign. When King Henry I died on the 1st of December 1135, he named his daughter Matilda as heir to the throne since he had no living sons. When Matilda found out about her father's death, she made no immediate move to secure the throne in England, but unfortunately, her cousin Stephen did. What ended up happening was Stephen then had a coronation, which of course by many would then be seen blessed by God. Long story short, for those who do not know who Matilda is, she is the mother of the very first Plantagenet king, King Henry II. Matilda and her cousin Stephen had quite the power struggle for the throne, While he had a coronation, she still attempted to get back what she believed to be hers. After years of infighting, eventually Stephen agreed to make Matilda's son, Henry, his heir, then making him King Henry II. And from there, the history just continues of over 300 years of Plantagenet rule. I told you this story because I feel like it has a little bit of importance as far as what a coronation meant to the subjects. It was blessed by God. They were anointed by God. So once you were crowned, it wasn't as easy um, to be dethroned. Now that we've come to the end of this episode, I'm realizing there's so much more left to talk about when it comes to coronations. So I will definitely make a second episode. Unfortunately, I already have stuff planned for the next two episodes. So it's going to be three episodes away before you get to hear more about coronations. But in the meantime, I would love your feedback. Let me know. Send me messages. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. Just search Tutors Dynasty. Don't forget the S. Tutors Dynasty. Send me. a message tell me what it is you would like to know about coronations because what i like and what i think is interesting might not be interesting to all of you so i would love to share with all of you what i found out this episode of the tudor's dynasty podcast was brought to you in part by the falcon nest handmade history themed jewelry the falcon nest specializes in gorgeous replicas of that famous anne boleyn bee necklace See more at the-falcon-nest.com. And be sure to remember to use promo code TudorsDynasty to receive 15% off. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. Until next time. Thanks for checking out the Tudors Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudors Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.